Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part two of Outlive by Dr. Peter Atia. In this episode, we will be rethinking medicine for the age of chronic disease. We'll be working our way from medicine 1.0 to medicine 2.0, and eventually ending up to medicine 3.0. And I'll be explaining why we should be practicing medicine 3.0 and what medicine 3.0 is. The quote at the beginning of this chapter is, the time to repair the roof is when the sun is shining. This was by John F. Kennedy. The first era of medicine, exemplified by Hippocrates, but lasting almost 2,000 years after his death, is what he calls Medicine 1.0. Its conclusions were based by direct observation and abetted more or less by pure guesswork. Medicine 1.0 really missed the mark entirely, like they were talking about bodily humors and many other notions that just were not true. Hippocrates' major contribution was that Diseases were, not, were caused by nature and not really by actions of gods, as previously been believed. And that alone represented a huge step in the right direction, but it was still far from the truth. They did their best that they could without any understanding of science or the scientific method. Medicine 2.0 arrived in the mid-19th century with the advent of the germ theory of disease, which supplanted the idea that illness was caused by miasmas or bad air, and this led into improvement in the sanitary practices by physicians, and ultimately the development of antibiotics. And even though people like Louis Pasteur, Joseph Lister, and Robert Koch came by and helped with a lot of groundbreaking studies and development of different methods to understand disease, we were still far from the truth. And Medicine 2.0 was a very, there was a long shift between Medicine 1.0 to Medicine 2.0, and it took centuries to even get here. Now, the shift from Medicine 1.0 to Medicine 2.0 was prompted in part by a new technology like the microscope, and it was also prompted more by a new way of thinking. So the foundation was laid all the way in 1628 by Sir Francis Bacon when he came up with the scientific method. It was a new way of, it was a philosophical shift from observing and guessing to really forming a hypothesis and finding out less about guesswork and more about trial and error. The next step is crucial. Rigorously testing the hypothesis guess to determine whether it is correct, and this is of course known as experimentation. And scientists and physicians could finally systematically test and evaluate potential cures, then choose the one that had best performed in the experiments. So we're slowly making headway. Now, Medicine 2.0 again has proved far less successful against long-term diseases like cancer. While this book, Outlive, always trumpeted the fact that lifespan has nearly doubled since the late 1800s, the lion's share of that progress may have resulted entirely from pure antibiotics and also improved sanitation. That means that Medicine 2.0 has made very scant progress against the four horsemen that I talked about in the previous episode. So towards Medicine 3.0. The goal of this new medicine, or what he calls Medicine 3.0, is to not patch people up and get them out the door, removing their tumors and hoping for the best, but rather to prevent the tumor from appearing and spreading in the first place, or to avoid that first heart attack, or to divert someone from the path to Alzheimer's disease. Our treatments and our prevention and detection strategies need to change to fit the nature of these diseases with their long, slow prologues. But Medicine 3.0, in his opinion, is not really about technology. Rather, it is, requires an evolution in the, our change in the mindset. 
a shift in the way in which we approach medicine. And he's really broken down, broken this down into four different points. So the first point is medicine 3.0 places a greater emphasis on prevention rather than treatment. So we, we're talking about prevention. And this harkens back to the quote I said by John F. Kennedy earlier. Secondly, medicine 3.0 considers the patient as a unique individual. Medicine 2.0 treated everyone as basically the same, the same, obeying the findings of clinical trials and then sort of grouping everyone together. So the way he puts it is these tri trials take heterogeneous inputs and come up with homogeneous results. So heterogeneous meaning different people, but homogeneous results as in we treat everyone the same. So medicine 3.0 takes the findings of evidence-based medicine and then goes one step further looking deeply into the, the data to determine how our patient, our specific patient, is similar or different from the quote-unquote average subjects in the study. The third philosophical shift in Medicine 3.0 is, is our attitude towards risk. In Medicine 3.0, our starting point is the honest assessment and acceptance of risk, including the risk of doing nothing. So let's take a deeper dive into what I mean by this. There are many examples by which 2.0 gets it wrong. So the example he uses is the hormone replacement therapy in postmenopausal women. So all the way back in 2002, there was a trial done by the Women's Health Initiative when it came to hormone replacement therapy in postmenopausal women. This large clinical trial involved thousands of older women, compared a multitude of health outcomes in women taking HRT hormone replacement therapy versus those who did not take it. The study reported a 24% relative increase in the risk of breast cancer among a subset of patients taking HRT and headlines all over the world started condemning HRT and saying that hormone replacement is causing cancer. And all of a sudden on this basis, HRT became virtually taboo. People started ignoring HRT saying it causes cancer, saying it causes these other problems. Now, this reported 24% increase sounded very scary indeed, but nobody seemed to care about the absolute risk increase of breast cancer for women in the study, which rem remained minuscule, meaning roughly 5 out of every 1,000 women in the HRT group developed breast cancer versus 4 out of every 1,000 in the control group who received no hormones. So 5 in the 1,000 who received HRT versus four in the 1,000 who did not receive HRT. The absolute risk was just 0.1% percentage points. HRT was linked to potentially one additional case of breast cancer in every 1,000 patients, so one in a 1,000. Yet this tiny increase in absolute risk was deemed to outweigh any benefits of taking HRT in postmenopausal women, and we know now why it's so important that postmenopausal women still have some sort of hormone replacement not only from a symptom aspect like getting rid of hot flashes and night sweats and anxiety, but also the importance of estrogen when it comes to helping increase the bone density in women and also increasing the muscle mass, which are so important, both the bone and muscle, as we get older. And of course, they're potentially, um, you know, with women who, not, who are not taking estrogen, postmenopausal will get that estrogen drop and then that also increases our risks of Alzheimer's. So all these things. And again, just this woman health initiative really turned people off to hormone replacement when indeed it's actually beneficial for most patients to take hormone replacement as they get older. 
Now, Medicine 2.0 would rather throw out this therapy entirely on the basis of one clinical trial, rather than trying to understand and address all the nuances like Medicine 3.0 does. So Medicine 3.0 would take the study into account while recognizing its limitations and, build, and built-in biases. The key question that Medicine 3.0 asks is whether this intervention, hormone replacement therapy, with its relatively small increase in average risk in a large group of women older than 65, might still be a net benefit for our individual patient with, his or, with her own unique mix of symptoms and risk factors. So just with one study, we need to not throw everything out, but take a closer look into the numbers and then find out whether hormone replacement is beneficial for this person or not. The fourth and perhaps largest shift is that where medicine, focused, where medicine 2.0 focuses on lifespan and almost entirely geared towards staving off death, medicine 3.0 pays more attention to maintaining health span, the quality of life. So healthspan was a concept that barely even existed when he went to medical school, and it still didn't exist when I went to medical school even more recently. So his professors said little to nothing about how to help our patients maintain their physical and cognitive capacity as they aged. The word exercise was almost never uttered, and sleep went totally ignored, and his instructors in nutrition were very minimal to non-existent. So he went to school back in probably 80s, late 70s, 80s. I recently, relatively recently, just graduated medical school. And even nowadays, we're still not talking about any of this stuff to our future doctors. So this is a problem, and hopefully sometime down the road, this is going to change. This brings us to perhaps the most important difference between Medicine 2.0 and Medicine 3.0. In Medicine 2.0, you are a passenger on the ship being carried along somewhat passively. Medicine 3.0 demands much more from you, the patient. You must be well-informed, medically literate to some reasonable de degree, clear-eyed about your goals, and cognizant of the true nature of risk. You must be willing to change ingrained habits, accept new challenges, and venture outside of your comfort zone if necessary. You are always participating, never passive. You confront problems, even uncomfortable or scary ones, rather than ignoring them until they're too late. You have the skin in the game in a very literal sense. So this is the biggest difference. In Medicine 3.0, we want patients to be more proactive. We want them to be more informed and understand the risks of certain interventions and also the risk of delaying treatment when it comes to these four horsemen that are so preventable. And this sort of takes us to the next chapter, which is objective strategy and tactics. And he begins this chapter by talking about the marginal decade. So this was a concept, I think, come up by Peter, where all of us will have a marginal decade, which is the last decade of our life. We don't know when that's going to be because we obviously don't know when we're going to die. But we all have this marginal decade, the last 10 years. And he asks all his patients to sketch out an alternative future for themselves. What do you want to be doing in your later decades? What is your plan for the rest of your life? The point of this exercise is twofold. First, it forces people to focus on their own end game. Second, it drives home the importance of health span. And he has this beautiful chart on, on the page here where he visualizes lifespan and health span in, in terms of a 
mathematical function. So if you can visualize on the x-axis, the line that goes horizontal, you have your lifespan. On the y-axis, the line that goes vertical, you have health span. And let's say you are at time zero, your health span is 100%, you're, you're just born. And as you go across the x-axis, your lifespan, your health span begins to drop, 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 drop. And then he shows how medicine 2.0 slowly shifts the curve a little bit to the right. And you can see how medicine 3.0 far extends the shift to the right, meaning your health span is going to last a lot longer. You're going to be at that 100% a lot longer. And then as you your lifespan gets further along, so further along the x-axis, you see a, a, a very sharp drop and dip in, in the health span, meaning you aren't suffering for longer. It's sort of you live a long, healthy life and you basically don't have any chronic issues until the very end. Now, I'll kind of read about the way he describes it. So look at the long dashed line on the graph. This represents your ideal trajectory. Instead of beginning a slow decline in your midlife, your overall health span stays the same or even improves into your 50s and 60s. There is much more space under this curve, and all that space represents your longer, better life. More time being with your family, pursuing your passions, traveling, continuing to work to do meaningful, you know, continuing to do meaningful work in your life. And this is really our objective, to delay death and also get the most out of your extra years towards the end. So what is our plan? So we want to look at objectives, strategies, and then tactics. Without understanding of the strategy and the science that informs it, our tactics will not really mean much and you'll forever ride this merry-go-round of fad diets and trendy workouts and miracle supplements. You'll be stuck in medicine 2.0 when we should be shifting our mindset to medicine 3.0. So this is the strategy. And the other key point is that health span and lifespan are not really independent variables. They are actually tightly intertwined. If you increase your muscle strength and improve your cardiorespiratory fitness, you have also reduced your risk of dying from all causes by a far greater magnitude than you could have achieved by any sort of cocktail of medications. The same goes for better cognitive and emotional health. The action we take, the different actions we take to improve our health span will also result in a longer lifespan. So they're, they are intertwined. This is why our tactics are largely aimed at improving health span first because the lifespan benefit will follow. Again, we wanna focus on the health span. When we focus on our health span, we increase our lifespan. So the tactics. The differences between medicine 2.0 and medicine 3.0 has to do how and also when we apply our tactics. In medicine 3.0, our tactics must be interwoven into our daily lives. We eat, we breathe, we sleep, all these different new tactics. Medicine 2.0 relies on two types of tactics, broadly speaking. This is procedures and medications. Medicine 3.0 will fall into five different domains, exercise, nutrition, sleep, emotional health, and these different exogenous molecules, things like hormones, peptides, and also supplements. So drugs and supplements aside, the first domain again is exercise. When we talk about exercise, it's sort of a broad umbrella term, but we know exercise has different components. There's strength, there's stability, 
there's aerobic efficiency and also peak aerobic capacity. Increasing your limits in each of these areas is necessary if you are hoping to reach your limit of lifespan and health span. So we can't just focus on strength. We can't just focus on aerobic capacity. We have to do everything when it comes to exercise. You have to increase your strength, your stability, aerobic efficiency, and also peak aerobic capacity. And in later episodes, I'll be talking about how to do so. This is another reason, this is another area where his his mind has really changed when it, when it comes to longevity. He used to prioritize nutrition over everything else, but he now considers exercise to be one of the most, imp- the most important longevity drug in our arsenal in terms of lifespan and health span. Now, the second domain is nutrition. I don't have to get too much into nutrition here, but in this book, he won't, telling, he won't be telling you to eat this or that. He's not going to have you subscribe to a specific diet, but we're going to kind of avoid all these religious discussions. And the best science out there says that what you eat matters, but the first order term is how much you eat, like how many calories you're taking into your body. So again, we'll be getting into a deeper dive in the later episodes. And of course, you know, we talk about sleep. He's going to be talking about emotional health to finish off the book. And just to quickly sum up these last parts from evidence-based to evidence-informed. So we always talk about random, randomized controlled trials, RCTs, as, a, as the gold standard of, of medical evidence. And there's a lot of problems with randomized controlled trials. Again, we sort of lump a heterogeneous group of people into some sort of homogenous treatment method. And we also need to talk about, again, a shift from an exclusively evidence-based to evidence-informed risk-adjusted precision medicine. So from evidence-based to evidence-informed. And let's see. So he talks about different animal models and how obviously mice are not human. But his rule of thumb is that if a given intervention can show, can be shown to extend lifespan or health span in multiple species spanning millions or billions of years of evolution, then he's kind of inclined to take it for as seriously. So even though there's no absolute truth, if we see something work across all animal models, everything from a worm to a monkey, then most likely it can be true for a human. Now, the final source of insight is the method of analysis he calls Mendelian randomization or MR. MR helps bridge the gap between these randomized control trials, which can establish causality and pure epidemiology, which often cannot. And again, we'll be talking about that a little bit later. Just to finish my last point, an astute reader will notice that one concept has been really missing from this chapter or this episode so far, and that is absolute certainty. This took him a while to really grasp when he transitioned from math to medicine, but in biology, we can rarely prove anything definitively the way we can in mathematics. Living systems are messy and confounding and complex, and our understanding of even fairly simple things is constantly evolving. The best we can hope for is to reduce our uncertainty. A good experiment in biology only increases or decreases our confidence in the probability that our hypothesis is true or false. And this is something I love that Lane Norton talks about. So he, he was asked, how do you, how can you trust someone? How, do, how can you listen to someone and know whether they're, they're knowledgeable or not? 
Well, oftentimes they'll be using a lot of words like probably, likely, or maybe. You know, there's no, I'm 100% certain this is true, or, or this is the diet you need to live longer. It's not like that, no. They use the words probably, likely, maybe, these different words where we have an idea, we've seen studies for it, but we're not 100% sure, and evidence is always evolving. So that's the end of this episode. I hope you learned something. I hope we can shift our mindset from medicine 2.0 to medicine 3.0, where we really start taking more control into our health. We really start thinking about the decisions we make when it comes to our health, and we really focus more on prevention and proactive methods rather than treatment and this sort of shift away from medicine 2.0. So thank you for listening. Hope you learned something, and I hope you tune in next time for another episode of Outlive by Dr. Peter Atiyah.